For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the hearts uh, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning by your spirit. You would give us soft hearts and open minds to receive the things from your word that you would have us know that we might live to your glory. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So, what is the Christian faith? Is it merely a set of propositions or is it more than that? There are some who would say that the Christian faith Christian faith is about more than knowledge, about more than about just knowing certain things. And I would agree. But I would also say that it is not less than knowing certain things, that there is at least some certain amount of knowledge that goes into being a Christian. For instance, you have to know that Jesus is the Christ. But in order to know that Jesus is the Christ, you have to know who Jesus is, what he did, who is the Christ, why that matters for us. There are all sorts of things that go into that. And where do you find the answers to those questions? You go to the Bible. Well, people have sometimes disagreed about what the Bible teaches, and so the church historically has taken it upon itself to uh, write down its understanding of what the Bible teaches, and it does that in creeds and confessions. We have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, and then there are confessions such as the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is accepted by Presbyterian churches the world over, including Presbyterian Church in America, and it was written in uh, 1643 in uh, London, and it's really one of the greatest summaries of the biblical Christian faith. But not everyone has seen it that way. There was a movement in the early 1800s uh, that sort of tried to get away from the idea of creeds and confessions. It was called the Restoration Movement, or sometimes called the Stone-Campbell Movement after two of its leaders, uh, one of whom was Barton Stone. And he was actually a Presbyterian minister but he decided that the Westminster Confession contains a lot of unbiblical additions, that as the church has gone on through history, it has added things to the simple biblical faith of the early church. And so he set about uh, leading a movement that, that swept away uh, creeds and confessions as things that get in the way of a sort of simple biblical faith. And their cry 
was no creed but Christ. You'll hear today people say something similar like doctrine divides, you know, things like that. Uh, Stone ended up leading this movement that has uh, given us the, uh, the churches of Christ and uh, the disciples of Christ. So if you ever see those churches around town, you know where they uh, came from. The problem is that no creed but Christ is itself a creed because, you know, you are, you are assuming all sorts of things in that about who Jesus is and what he came to do and things like that. Uh, but you're making it so that we can't actually tell what you believe and, and compare it to, you know, what we believe. Uh, so that, that's one of the things that is helpful about creeds and confessions is it, it you know, lays it out plainly for other people to see what you believe and you can compare it. Another thing that is helpful about creeds and confessions is that they, uh, they give us something to aspire to. If you're simply reading the Bible on your own, you will naturally be drawn to certain books and certain teachings and you might be less drawn to other things and so pay less attention to those things. When a confession lays out the teaching of the Bible as a whole in an orderly way, it gives you, it points out things that might be kind of blind spots for you. And so pushes you to uh, grasp all that God has revealed in his Bible, to, to strive for knowing and understanding everything that he has revealed. And that can be helpful. One of the objections that Stone and some other folks who were along with him uh, made to things like confessions and to the study of doctrine was that it can be stifling to the Christian life, right? It ends up uh, giving us a sort of dry intellectualism rather than a kind of vibrant living faith. That was the idea anyway. And it's better for us to just maintain this very simple non-doctrinal faith in Jesus. That is the best way to achieve a vibrant Christian life. Well, the Apostle Paul would probably disagree because in our passage today, he actually gives us some doctrines. He gives us some things for us to know that are helpful for living the Christian life. And this passage breaks down uh, somewhat neatly into three parts. Verses 15 and 16 tell us about Paul's thanks to God for the Ephesians. Verses 17 to 19 tell us about Paul's prayer for knowledge. And verses 20 to 23 tell us about Paul's praise of God's power in Christ. So because I want to focus on how this passage bears on the Christian life, I'm going to call these three sections something different. I'm going to call them uh, the shape of the Christian life, the fuel of the Christian life, and the power of the Christian life. So that, once again, the shape of the Christian life, the fuel of the Christian life, and the power of the Christian life. So first, we'll look at what Paul says about the shape of the Christian life. He begins by saying, for this reason, which obviously points back to something that he has said before. Uh, In verses 3 to 14, Paul goes on this extended sort of rhapsody about the blessings that we enjoy in Christ. And he might be referring back to this entire section. For this reason, he gives thanks. More likely, he's referring to just the last paragraph, verses 11 to 14. 
but especially verses 13 and 14, where he notes that the Ephesian believers have heard and believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. So it's for that reason that, they, that he gives uh, thanks. But he gives two other reasons why he gives thanks. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now, some commentators have said that this, it's a strange thing for Paul to say that he has heard of the faith of the Ephesians. Uh, I mentioned last time I was here when I preached on the previous passage that Paul had spent a significant amount of time in Ephesus. He visited there during his third missionary journey, which went from A.D. uh, 54 to 57, 53 to 57, excuse me, and he stayed for two years in Ephesus, probably around 54 to 56. And this is all discussed in Acts chapter 19. And there was a significant event there where people were turning to Christ and believing the gospel, and there ended up being a riot centered on the temple of Artemis, which was a big part of life in Ephesus. And Christians were were, uh, no longer participating in the life of the, the temple. They weren't buying sacrificial animals and so on, and it was hurting the livelihood of some of the, fe- the folks who were uh, connected with, uh, with the temple. And so there was this riot over economic uh, reasons and um, ended up being this big uh, crazy thing. Uh, so that was a, a significant event during uh, Paul's stay there. And then in the next chapter, after uh, in Acts 20, after Paul had gone on to, on to Miletus, he called some of the Ephesian elders to them and gave them this impassioned speech, how much he cared about them. So he, he clearly had a, a strong connection to the city. So to some commentators, like I said, it seems strange that he would say that he has heard of their faith rather than saying, you know, I know your faith because he, because he did know these people. Well, we have to remember that Paul wrote this letter during his first Roman imprisonment, which happened uh, uh, from AD 60 to 62. So it was about five or six years later that he wrote this letter. And Ephesus was a big, important city. The church could have grown a whole lot during that time. So he's writing to a group of people, some of whom he knows and some of whom he doesn't know. He's heard a report about their growth and their life in Christ, and he is giving thanks for them. He could also be referring to, rather than their faith, their faithfulness, how they've endured, how they've borne up under pressure and persecution. We know from the incident in Acts 19 that persecution was certainly a possibility in that area. And so Paul could be rejoicing that they have uh, borne up under uh, pressure from the world, but either way, he's rejoicing that these Ephesian believers have trusted in Christ and are uh, living for him. So that's having heard of their faith. He next says that he has heard of the love that the Ephesians have for all the saints. Now, love, of course, is one of the defining virtues of Christians. Jesus tells us in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Christians are called to do good to everyone, to love our neighbor. 
and you know, to love our neighbors as ourselves, but there is a special love that we are called to exhibit toward our fellow believers. And this is the case because when we are saved by God, we are not saved simply as individuals, but we are brought into a group, a community, the body of Christ, the church. Uh, Paul calls the church the body of Christ here in verse 23. So we are not just individuals, we are part of a body. You are the, you know, the, the Springs Presbyterian Church is a body that is part of the larger body of Christians through all times and places. And just as we love our physical bodies, we are also called to love our spiritual body, the body of Christ. And we can see this special love that we are called to have for other Christians at various places in the New Testament. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, there is a call for a collection for the uh, Christians in Jerusalem who were uh, in distress. And also in Hebrews 10, there is a call not to give up meeting together. We are to meet together. And in uh, Galatians 6, we are called to bear one another's burdens. This is all a part of the New Testament's commands to, to exercise a special care for other members of the church. We can see it also in the various one another commands throughout the New Testament. Love one another, submit to one another, welcome one another, stir up one another to good deeds, serve one another. And these commands all have special reference to our fellow believers in the church. So Paul is thankful that he sees these Christian virtues being lived out among the Ephesian believers. And so Paul says he gives thanks. Thankfulness is another inherently Christian virtue because it is a, an inherently humble act. When you, when you give thanks, you realize that you are not self-sufficient, that something you have is yours because of someone else. Something you have has come from someone else, and so you feel the need to give thanks. In this case, uh, Paul is, is giving thanks to God, recognizing that it is through God's uh, grace that the Ephesians have come to know and believe the gospel. We as Christians, of course, have have more reason than anyone else to be thankful because we enjoy the blessings that Paul outlines in verses 3 to 14. <clears throat> Things like justification, adoption, reconciliation, freedom from the curse of the law, fellowship, and more. And these things ought to move us to be thankful. But Paul is, is thankful not simply for his own salvation, but he is expressing thanks to God for the salvation of the Ephesians. This again gets at this idea that we are part of one body. And so Paul rejoices not only in his own salvation, but for the salvation of the Ephesians, which again expresses the truth that is solely because of God that any one of us believes. So we ought to be thankful for the salvation of others no less than we are thankful for our own salvation. So the shape of the Christian life tells us that the Christian life begins and is sustained by faith 
and it is marked by love for other believers and thankfulness to God. So that's the, the shape of the Christian life. Next is the fuel of the Christian life. In verse 16, Paul notes that he gives thanks continually for the Ephesians, and he prays for them. And in verses 17 to 19, he tells us exactly what he prays for. The first thing, verses, in verse 16, he says, remembering you in my prayers. And then in verse 17, that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So the first thing to notice is, again, that knowledge comes from God. It is at his discretion how it is distributed. All knowledge is contained in God, and he distributes it as he will. He, he makes some knowledge known to all people, and there is other knowledge that he reserves for certain people. The Ephesians had already received saving knowledge of God. They had heard the gospel and believed in it. But there is more to know. There is more that God can reveal. And Paul prays that God would give it to the, Ephesians, uh, the Ephesian believers. He prays that God would see fit to continue to give them knowledge and wisdom. His prayer also, we, we should notice, is very Trinitarian. He mentions the, uh, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So it is the Father in whom all knowledge is contained. And he is noted especially as the Father of our Lord Jesus, which tells us, uh, which brings our minds back to uh, the gospel, which is centered on Christ. And, uh, and especially how Christ is the fullest revelation of the character of God. And then also he prays, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom, which is the, uh, the Holy Spirit. That, uh, and it is the spirit who not only applies salvation, but who illumines our minds. He has, he has inspired the, uh, the, the, the Bible. He, he worked in the hearts and minds of the, the authors of the Bible to give us the exact words that God wanted us to have so that we could uh, have salvation and live for him. And he also illumines each one of our hearts so that we can understand what he has written in the Bible. So it's very Trinitarian language as each of the three persons of the Trinity are involved in this giving knowledge to us. And God grants this knowledge so that our understanding of him and our relationship with him would deepen. The phrase at the end of verse 17, in the knowledge of him, is translated pretty literally, but we, we should probably understand it as, a, as expressing purpose. Why does God do this? He does it so that we could know him better. Having the, the hearts of your eyes enlightened at the beginning of verse 18 is similar. Uh, God is often associated with light in Scripture, and Jesus is as well. This light uh, has to do with, with knowledge, but especially saving knowledge. You can see this in 
places like John 1 and 2 Corinthians 4. And here, Paul prays that the Ephesians would grow in their understanding of the salvation that they had received. Truly, knowing God is the greatest good that there is. And we have a great privilege for having received that saving knowledge and having trusted in it. We have received God's revelation of himself in Christ and had that placed upon our hearts by his spirit. So really, we ought to join with Paul in praying this prayer uh, that, the, that the Lord would continue to reveal himself to us, to help us, to guide us into a, a deeper understanding of him and the salvation that he has accomplished for us. So after noting that how Paul continues to continually pray for the Ephesians, he goes on to list three specific things that he prays for, and these are found in verses uh, 18 and 19. He prays uh, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So first is the hope to which he has called you. Now, when we use the word hope, we often think of something that has a purely future orientation and also something that is doubtful. It's something that we want to happen, but we're not sure that it will. You know, like I, I hope I get a promotion or I hope I get into you know, this perfect college that I'm looking at, or, you know, even hoping that something doesn't happen. Like, I hope that uh, the report I get from the doctor is not a negative one, you know, something like that. And scripture will often use it in this sense, but there's also another sense that we see hope being used in scripture. And we can see it in places like Romans 5, 2, where Paul says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So here, hope does not have a merely future, uncertain orientation to it. There is a sense that Paul already possesses the thing that he is looking forward to, the glory of God, because he already has access to God. So he is certain, there's no uncertainty, he is certain that he will possess the thing that he's looking forward to because he's gotten a taste of it already. So in places like this, hope is not something uncertain and future, it's something that we already possess and that we look forward to enjoying the fruition of, the fullness of it at some point. So Paul is talking about the hope the hope to which he has called you. So the, the, speaking of the calling of God, there, there's two ways that this call is often spoken of in scripture. And the first is the external call, which is the gospel. We preach the gospel to all people and pray that the Lord would, would save whom he would. And there's also the internal call, which is uh, perfectly effective. That is where the spirit regenerates us and allows us to respond to the gospel. But there's also a call in, a, in another sense in which we, we are called to love and serve our neighbors and, and to, uh, to live lives 
that are glorifying to God. And so Paul is probably thinking of the, the effectual call that they would understand um, the Spirit's work in them, whereby they are saved, and also the call that they were to live godly lives and love one another. This hope that they are called to kind of encompasses all of the aspects of salvation. Justification, adoption, reconciliation, fellowship, and all these other things that we've mentioned. We possess these things even now. We don't have to simply look forward to them and wonder whether we will actually come into possession of them. We have them now, but we don't have a a complete understanding of those things. And Paul prays that that the Ephesians would understand all that they have received through Christ. Next is the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. In the previous passage, verses 3 to 14, Paul has already spoken of an inheritance. He, uh, he mentions a future inheritance of which the Spirit is the guarantee. But there he spoke of our inheritance. He says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Whereas in this verse, he speaks, he, he prays that the Ephesians would know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So is there a difference there? There is, uh, it could be that he's referring to the inheritance that God has stored up for us. It's something that God possesses now and he is holding in reserve for us uh, at some future date, in which case it would mean something like the inheritance that he has in store for the saints or the inheritance that will be enjoyed among the saints. But since he has, all, he has just mentioned hope, which, which is not purely future, but does have a, a, a sense of the, something to be completed in the future, there would be some overlap here in terms of inheritance, if he meant that it was something that we would, we would inherit in the future. So for that reason, and also because Paul speaks of his inheritance rather than our inheritance, I think it's better to see this as God's inheritance rather than ours, something that God inherits, which means that God sees us, the saints, as his inheritance, as a glorious treasure that he will get to enjoy someday. So he is storing us up that he might gather all of us in one day. This is kind of a crazy thought when you think about it, that we sinners, rebellious, dirty, sinful, prone to making mistakes, God looks at us and sees a glorious treasure. Now, of course, when he looks at us, he sees his son, and his son is a perfect, beautiful, glorious covering for us, so that God looks at us and sees sinlessness and perfection. He no longer sees our sin, but he has set his love upon us and given his only son because we were so valuable in his eyes. And so there's this sense that Paul wants the Ephesians to know how valuable 
they are to God, that he simply cannot wait until the day that they are all gathered in and he can enjoy this treasure that he has been waiting for. So Paul then finally uh, prays that the Ephesians would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He goes on to say that this power is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What Paul is doing here is trying to explain what a great change has been worked in the lives of the Ephesians. So he likens their salvation, which is their spiritual resurrection. They've been brought from death to life. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. As Paul will go on to say in chapter 2, he has brought them to new life just as he brought Christ to life on the third day. So the, the salvation, the spiritual resurrection of the Ephesians is like the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. First, this means again that our salvation is wholly a work of God because Christ's resurrection was wholly a work of God. It also means that the power that was at work in the resurrection of Christ is also at work in our lives. This was once a big aha moment for me because if you're anything like me, you can think that, you know, I've been saved by grace through faith, but after that, it's kind of up to me and I have to you know, do my best and stop screwing up and, and things like that. Uh, but that is not the case. Uh, God has not left us alone after saving us. Uh, he continues to be with us by his spirit. And the power that was at work in the tomb on the third day is at work in our lives. There's a special reference uh, to the work in bringing the Ephesians to uh, to life, to spiritual life, but that power did not go away at that point. And this was something that Paul realized when he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, which is detailed in Acts 9. Uh, Paul realized that because Christ had been raised, everything has changed. The resurrection is real, the new age has begun, and resurrection power is at work in the world, even now. And that power, then, is available to us. That power also has a goal. It is the creation of more believers in the image of Christ. Christ was the first to rise from the dead, which means he is not only the firstfruits of the resurrection, but he is also the pattern, the likeness to which we are being conformed in our sanctification. The same power that raised him from the dead is, is the power that, that raised us from spiritual death to new life and then now is at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. So when we contemplate Paul, uh, excuse me, Christ's resurrection, we have an illustration not only of the change that has been affected in us, but also a promise 
that God will see it through to completion, that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. So Paul prays that the Ephesians would know all of these things. And these are crucial to living the Christian life. So let us not fall into the trap that Barton Stone fell into, where we are satisfied with a minimal amount of knowledge about God, but let us try to step into the fullness of what he has revealed to us, as Paul encourages us to do here, that we might be fueled by what we, what we find there to live lives that are pleasing to him. So that's the shape of the Christian life and the fuel of the Christian life. And finally, there is the power of the Christian life. Paul continues, um, after listing his three prayers, he continues then talking about the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. He writes of the, um, the power that was at, at, work, at work in Christ, raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this section here, these few verses, are sort of a, a brief digression on Paul's part. In chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians, he's, he's discussing the blessings that uh, have come to the Ephesians, especially as, as Gentiles. You know, he'll, he'll discuss in chapter 2 how they had been strangers and exiles from the covenants of God, but now they have been brought near to him. And, uh, and as Gentiles, they, they enjoy salvation right alongside the Jews, and that is a, a tremendous thing. So that's what he covers in verses in chapters 1 to 3. Uh, and he brings up the resurrection and exaltation of Christ as a sort of illustration of the salvation of the Ephesians. And then he continues that thought for a few verses before returning to his main topic, the beginning of chapter 2. So Paul says that when God raised Christ from the dead, he seated him at his right hand. The right hand, of course, was the place of power and authority. It meant that God the Father and God the Son were working perfectly in concert. They were, they were absolutely agreed when it comes to our redemption. They were agreed in whom to save, how to save, how to bring them home. There was no conflict between them. They had set their love on us before time began and Christ has accomplished the plan of the Father. And this is signified by his taking uh, the, the place at the Father's right hand. Furthermore, the fact that the Son is seated means that the work is completed. There is no more that needs to be done for us to be redeemed. Christ has earned our salvation, and we can be secure. In that fact, we need not wonder whether we can lose our salvation or if there's something we have to do to, to actually uh, earn that or retain it. Christ has accomplished everything that needs to be done. Then Paul says that, that God has seated Christ 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These are these words that he uses here are likely references to classes of angels, various levels of angels, which might have meant something in particular to the Ephesians, as there were all sorts of false teachings and mystery religions going on that would vie for their attention, uh, where people were, you know, listing the various levels of angels and appealing to them in various ways. And, <coughs> excuse me, and Paul is saying, you don't have to worry about these levels of angels because Christ has been seated at a level of authority that exceeds all created creatures. You don't have the need for intercession uh, from these various angels. You can go straight to Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father. There is no higher position of authority than that which Christ occupies. And Paul reinforces this idea when he says that Christ has been seated above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There, there is not and there never will be anyone at a higher authority than Jesus Christ. His authority is absolute and unchallenged, which is a tremendous comfort to us for what have we to fear with Christ there interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Paul then makes a reference to Psalm 8 when he says that God has placed all things under Christ's feet. Psalm 8 talks about God having placed all things under man's feet, man, mankind. And there isn't really a sense in the original uh, text there in Psalm 8 that this is referring to the Messiah. But the universal dominion that is envisioned in Psalm 8 can really only be accomplished by the God-man, Jesus Christ, and those who are in union with him. So it is a fitting application of that text to Christ. And then finally, Paul says that God gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What this tells us is that Christ's universal dominion exists for the sake of the church. It has a purpose. Christ, uh, God has resurrected and exalted Christ for the sake of the church, for us. Christ is over all things, and especially over the church as its head. And he fills all things, but especially the church as his body. He is the source of all life, but especially of the church who enjoy new, resurrected, spiritual life. So these are the things that Paul wants the Ephesians to know, and they are certainly worthy of our attention and our praise. For we have a Savior who not only died for us, but was resurrected for us, who is seated at God's right hand, who intercedes for us and who rules us lovingly for our own good, that we might be conformed to his image. So this is <clears throat> fuel for the Christian life, that we would know these things and apply them to our lives for God's glory.
I was once reading Psalm 18, and I was struck by some of the language there. Psalm 18 is one of my favorite psalms. It, it, it was written by David, and uh, it describes a time when he was in deep distress. We don't know uh, what the occasion was for this psalm. <coughs> Excuse me. But David is in deep distress, and he calls out to God for rescue. And then he talks about how the Lord responds. And here's what he says. This is just part of what he says. He goes on uh, for, for quite some time to describe God's response, but I just want to give you a little bit. He says, Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. David was in deep distress, and he experienced an amazing rescue from God. David's rescue, as great as it was, was only a foreshadowing of the greater rescue that we experience in Christ. David's rescue was physical, ours is spiritual. And, and David could fall into danger again, but we are no longer in spiritual danger. God will bring us home, and he is at work in us even now. So let us remember that the God we serve is the one that David described here, the God who parts heaven and earth, who shakes the foundations of the world to be with his people, to rescue them because he delights in them. This God has done more than we could ask or imagine, and he continues to be at work in our lives by his resurrection power, through the presence of his spirit in us and among us, and he has not left us alone, but he will finally bring us home. Let's pray. Our great God, we do thank you that you have given us saving knowledge of yourself, that you have allowed us to hear and to believe the gospel, that you have not left us alone, but that your spirit is with us to conform us into the image of your son. Pray that your power would continue to be at work in us to help us understand all that you have done for us and that your promise would be fulfilled that we could enjoy you fully one day. In your son's name we pray, amen.